Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome a first-time guest. This is a Young Voices contributor by the name of Anne Lord. And Anne, I know there's much more to you than, than simply uh, you are a contributor to Young Voices. Take a moment, if you would. Tell us just a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, my name is Ann Lorm, originally from St. Louis, Missouri. I am currently the lead for government affairs at the Vandenberg Coalition, which is a 501c3 that promotes a strong um, and proud U.S. foreign policy. Um, before that, I spent a little bit of time on the Hill working for Senator Sass, um, and I'm happy to be on your show today. And I'm, I'm looking at your article that was written for RealClearWorld.com about Biden's failure to lead on Ukraine. And I, I, there's a clarification I'm going to ask for. First of all, it's not that the Biden administration isn't involved in Ukraine, right? I mean, we are sending a lot of money there, but what? How, where is his uh, failure to lead? Help me understand that. Right. And I think that's a that's a really great uh, point in terms of clarification, because we have seen the Biden administration's engagement in Ukraine. And um, most recently, after my articles published, President Biden visited Ukraine. And that's all incredibly important and great and that we continue to support the Ukrainians in their fight against Russian uh, uh, Russians in invasion. Um, However, what we've seen in the Biden administration's decision making process is this sort of stall. It's this continuing to just drip, drip, drip of, you know, whether it be weapons or assistance to the Ukrainians, as opposed to just giving them what they need. It's been the, okay, well, let's hurry up and think about these things a little bit more before we actually send the Ukrainians what they need um, to uh, oppose the Russian, uh, Russian troops. So um, you mentioned in your article that uh, Europe specifically has has really been calling upon the U.S. to exercise um, greater leadership. Help me understand the situation that Europe finds itself in right now in relation to Ukraine. Are are these European nations looking around and going, hey, are we next? Yes. Yeah, so I think that's definitely part of the concern that we're seeing from a lot of the, especially the Eastern um, European nations. Poland especially has been particularly concerned about that. And I think what's been interesting is the increased involvement um, of Western Europeans with a concern about energy security and all of that, that they're greatly seeing on the effects of the people. Um, and part of the things that I talk about in the in the article is that what we're seeing from Europe isn't, isn't a level of engagement that we would necessarily want. And part of the reason is because they're looking for that leader. They're looking for the United States to step up and be the ones to push the coalition of allies and partners forward. Um, for example, when we were having these tank discussions about whether or not Germany should release the, the Leopard 2s, um, their argumentation was kind of this a crazy logic that, well, we don't want to do that because the last time we sent tanks across Europe, we were, you know, fighting, fighting Russians in World War II, and that's not a great look. But if you're looking historically, you know, that's a, this is a completely different matter. Um, so what then ended up happening was that they really needed the United States to step up and say, okay, we're going to send these Abrams tanks. So what we're seeing is Europe's, Europeans are truly calling upon the U.S. to lead the coalition so that way they can turn and go back to their population and say, hey, this is this is something that we have all hands on. Um, so that's what we're mainly seeing. Okay. Now, I, I have to ask this just because um, at some point it starts to look a lot like the U.S. is 
squaring off against Russia, albeit not directly through aid, through you know supporting the the, the Ukrainians as well as uh, other uh, potential coalition members. Um, does this get to a point where where it it finally is? Look, okay, it is the U.S. versus Russia, or does does the involvement stay somewhere less than that? You know, that's a really kind of interesting question. And I want to I want to dive a little bit more deeply into the nuance of that. One of the things and one of the reasons why we need to continue to support Ukraine is because we are not sending troops to Ukraine. These are Ukrainians saying we want to continue to fight. We want to continue to protect our sovereignty. We want to continue to ensure that we're able to remain a truly democratic nation. We are, in turn, as the United States, um, benefiting from this um, this particular arrangement in that the Ukrainians are willing to do all the fighting for us while similarly um, ensuring that one of our key adversaries in great power competition, including China, uh, Russia, Iran, and then some of the smaller uh, North Korea and all of that, they're ensuring that they are um, being weakened um, while we assist them. So we receive a lot of benefits with that in terms of um, making sure that our adversaries are not um being able to bully others on the world stage and thus, you know, potentially threatening the United States and the homeland. So I wouldn't necessarily say that it's the United States versus, you know, Russia, um, that we are reaping benefits in terms of one of our adversaries being um, weakened as as we continue to support Ukraine in their fight for independence. Is there a limit to the types of weapons that uh, the U.S. would be willing to provide? You know, so that's sort of an interesting question. We've seen a lot of um, people want to be continuing, uh, continuing on the same sort of line. However, um, as I as I mentioned in my article, there's sort of this new um, uh, call for us to be sending the Ukrainians every you know what they need. So that would be large, large long-range artillery, such as attackums, fighter aircrafts, um, in particular, the F-16 has been something that's really important. And, you know, this is something that there's bipartisan support for. This is something that we've seen um, Senator Armed Services, uh, Minority uh, Leader Senator Wicker call for. This is something that we've seen Senator uh, Sheldon Whitehouse call for. Um, and so it's one of those things that there's there's a wide range of support across a coalition to continue to give the Ukrainians everything that they need in order to um, to fight this war and to have it be um, to end more quickly um, if we give them what they need. Now, some of those things, uh, I mean, like for instance, planes and tanks and so forth, uh, it takes some time to bring. You know, if if we if we bring give those, it, it does take time to bring their crews. You know, up to the proper training, able to maintain them, and so forth. Um, I, I think most people would like to see this done quickly, but I'm, I'm just curious if, if this is the kind of situation that doesn't get resolved quickly, but, uh, you know, for, for the U.S. to provide what is needed, I guess that's why I'm asking, you know, how far would that go? Would that, in, would that include, you know, um, you know, strategic weapons or is it just going to be limited to basically tanks and, and planes? No, and I completely understand your your question, and in particular, at least when it comes to a lot of training, um, what we've seen with the um, the Abrams tanks, and we've seen reporting come after the decision had been made that it will take um, 
quite some time for the tanks to to get to Europe. And that's why it's sort of highly problematic that the Biden administration has been spending so much time waffling and not necessarily moving forward with a decisive um, with a decisive hand in a lot of this because it will take time. However, we've seen our Ukrainian partners being really sort of proactive and uh, training on similar type weaponry and um, training their pilots to be potentially able to fly F-16s should we make the decision to send those to the Ukrainians. So they're really quite ready to hit the ground running. Um, but I think that just gets to, you know, to the larger point of what I've been saying is that you know, as we continue to decide to aid the Ukrainians, we can't be stalling and making a lot of these decisions and waffling and going back and forth and, you know, taking time to court the decisions of, well, first we're going to say, no, we're not going to send if the administration saying, no, we're not going to send if it's 16s. But then in a couple months, our partners will continue to say, no, no, we really do need these and we really do appreciate. And then we'll go back and forth. And, and what we'll see is it's just time wasted. Um, and much to your point, uh, that would that would result in a much longer conflict than than we'd um, than we'd want to in, be engaged with because a longer conflict results in um, you know much more hardship for everyone globally. Well, yeah, and it would seem that uh, there would be great incentive among the, the the European nations who, again, you know, they're looking and going, "Wow, I wonder if we're next." It seems like it would it would behoove them to to really step up and take a leading role. Um, tell me again. They look, do they look to the U.S. because we have greater material resources, or, or are they just are they accustomed to the protection that they have been afforded? You know, as being part of NATO, and and expect the U.S. to to lead out in that regard. You know, I think it's a little bit of uh, both. We do have uh, we are incredibly fortunate that we've been. Um, uh, contributing more to our defense spending, though we could always we could always be increasing that tap line in order to be giving. Um, our Department of Defense, what they need in terms of great power competition. Um, but historically, they've rested on their laurels and haven't necessarily um, been the ones to step up in these types of conflict. So they really do need that leader. And in in terms of the future, that's, that's the United States. Historically, it's been the United States and the future it will be. So to have an administration that is resting and is waiting for others to move forward before um, before other nations or other nations to move forward first, that's not necessarily something that benefits us or the Ukrainians in this conflict. Okay. Again, we are talking with Ann Lord. She is a Young Voices contributor, and uh, we'll have a link in the show notes to your article about Biden's failure to lead on Ukraine. And um, could you could you tell us where can people follow your work and uh, where might they follow you on social media? Absolutely. Um, you can follow me on uh, Twitter. It's Ann T. Lord. Um, or you are welcome to search the Vandenberg Coalition. And I'm happy to get into contact with you there. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Absolutely. You have a great rest of your day. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome another new contributor today. His name is Gannon Evans. And uh, Gannon, if you wouldn't mind, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. 
Hey, Brian, thanks for the opportunity to come on today. Uh, my name is Gannon. I'm a policy analyst at Kansas Policy Institute. We're a think tank in the state of Kansas, and I primarily work on issues related to government spending and taxation. Well, and and we've got a great issue to talk about today, that being the flat tax. And I, you know, I have heard talk of the flat tax for, well, over 20 years now, I'm sure. But it seems like there's been very little movement until lately. And I was happy to see in your article written for CJ Online that uh, not only are there states that have, have uh, effectively moved forward with the flat tax, but it sounds like uh, your home state of Kansas is uh, is looking that direction, too. First of all, let's make the case. Why does the flat tax make sense? Why would states want to go toward it. Absolutely. And as you said, there's definitely a lot of excitement. The tax foundation has called it the, the flat tax revolution, where over the past year, there's been four or five states that have passed legislation to go down to a flat tax. And just because a lot of people don't know what a flat tax is, uh, what it is, is states that tax income. What a flat tax is, is that it's just one rate applied to all of the income instead of it being bracketed into different rates. Now, we're facing massive inflation right now. I mean, in Kansas, for instance, families are facing an additional cost of $718 a month, which is wow. massive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so how does the how does the I know the the common objection is well that means that the fat cats are just going to get away with keeping more of their presumably ill gotten money but um, actually I think it was Neil Bortz back in uh, in you know early two thousands was was explaining this is as fair as it gets people paying the same rate you know proportionally they're going to be paying more but what is it that tipped those states that finally have said, okay, we're going to look at it, not only look at it, but embrace it. What was it that finally helped them make the decision to cross that line and do it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to your first point there, I mean, the fundamental thing about a flat tax is that it's fair, right? It's fair and simple. You look at the incomes, you know exactly what you're going to be taxed, you know exactly what that is going forward. And you do not have to worry about any sort of social engineering through the tax system. Now, one of the common comments I get is, oh, but isn't this going to only help the rich? And the answer to that is no, because specifically the bill that I support, it's HB 2061. It's going through house tax right now. It provides an exemption for incomes for um, below $15,000 for single filers and $30,000 for married filers. What that means is that, for instance, um, you, you're going to have tax cuts at all levels. I mean, uh, I think the math was around the $30,000 for married filers. It's like $488 saved. And that's money that can go a long ways. Um, but I think the really big tipping point and the issue I'm trying to make in Kansas right now is that we're falling behind by staying in the same place. Um, Kansas attempted tax reform in the past, but because of issues with not balancing with spending and continually decreasing the revenues, we had to go to the largest tax cut in state history in 2017. Now, since that time, 24 other states have pursued tax reform, and they've all seen the economic benefits. I mean, when you look at the North Carolinas, the Tennessees, the Floridas of today, they're all states seeing massive migration, wage growth, job growth. And a lot of it comes down to the fact that these tax reforms are, they keep more money in people's wallets, 
they lower costs on businesses, and they make these places more affordable and attractive to live in. So I just want to make sure I'm understanding correctly. Um, even those places that are willing to to cut their their level of taxation or ease the taxation level can because people would be more willing if they can keep more of what they earn. It sounds like it would actually end up increasing the tax revenues in the end. In other words, more people go out, spend capital, create business, create opportunity, generate more tax revenue, even though the tax rates may have been been trimmed back. I mean, is that a fair way to portray it? Essentially, yes, but I would be careful with how to describe it because that's a very long-term effect. And there are some people who believe that, okay, instantaneously, we're going to have this revenue made up, but that's just not true. And in fact, in the short run, to make something like a flat tax or any sort of tax reform work, you really have to dig into the spending side of it. Because if you're unable to balance revenues in the short runs, the tax decrease now is just going to turn into a tax increase somewhere else in the future. And how receptive are the lawmaking bodies in those states uh, to to trimming spending? It seems like once a program's in place, you know, everyone is loath to do anything to, to cut it back. In fact, I think we often hear it described as they're slashing, you know, programs right and left when all they really did. I mean, they're still spending as much as they were. They're just not spending as much as the program would now like to have. Exactly. And, you know, I always like to bring up the example of Mitch Daniels. He was a former governor of Indiana. He is the outgoing president of Purdue University. But Mitch Daniels' approach on it is the government budget is like a marbled slab of meat, right? There's fat everywhere, and it's more a matter of trimming the fat where it is rather than just hacking off a chunk and, you know, trying to make it work. By that, I mean, for instance, you can really dig deep into different agencies and say, okay, is this $100,000 here really worth it? Um, if this employee leaves our company naturally and they retire, do we need to have a replacement or are these duties that we could find some alternative for, like, for instance, um, splitting the jobs amongst existing employees or automating it? Some solutions like this. Now, Mitch Daniels, his story is that at Purdue University, amidst a time that, you know, you see the cost of education drastically increasing, Mitch Daniels has kept the cost of tuition at Purdue flat for about a decade. And it's because of this dedication to keeping the costs low and a, just a continual dedication to efficiency. Now, um, I've tried to contribute to this. For instance, we had uh, we have performance-based budgeting in Kansas, which is every year there's a report release that looks at every single agency. They have to provide objectives. They have to provide spending. And you can do analysis based on whether the agencies are hitting these objectives and how much money they're getting. We identified about $815 million going to programs that had funding increase, but their outcomes decrease over time. It's areas like that that's a red flag of, okay, what are we doing inefficiently here? Why are we putting more money into this when the program is not doing what it's supposed to do and there isn't accountability? Well, it sounds like uh, an idea whose time has come. Is, is there serious opposition within the, uh, the legislative ranks in Kansas against this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things, as I mentioned earlier, because of the failed 2012 tax reform, anytime 
tax reform is on the table, you will have the mantra of back to Brownback, Brownback being the governor that passes legislation. And we try to dispel a lot of the myths surrounding it and just also try and be honest of, look, here's why this tax reform has failed. But if this truly was the end all, then how come 24 other states have done the same tax reform and are perfectly fine and are growing? Yeah, it's nice to be able to point to those other states as as proof that, look, it can be done. Yeah, Okay. absolutely. Well, I appreciate you weighing in on this. Again, we're talking with Gannon Evans. He's a policy analyst at Kansas Policy Institute, as well as a Young Voices contributor. Gannon, for people who wish to uh, to follow your writings, where would they go to find you? Absolutely. I post all of my writing and research on our website of kansaspolicy.org. And I also have a Twitter account. I'm going to try and be more active on it is GEvans923. Okay. Very good. Well, I, I wish you the very best, and, and frankly, now you've got me wishing that maybe lawmakers in my state of Idaho would, would take a closer look at flat tax, too. Mm-hmm. Thanks Absolutely. again. Thanks, Brian. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're welcoming a familiar voice back to the program. Alexandra Hudson. Lexi, how are you? It's so good to see you again. Hi, great to see you, Brian. Thanks for having me. Now, for people who are meeting you for the first time, um, they're, they're not going to know some of the things I know about uh, some of the amazing work that you're involved in. So let's take just a moment here. Tell us just a little bit about who you are and, and about your background. My name is Lexi Hudson. I was raised in an intellectually omnivorous home. My parents taught us and modeled for my brothers and I that learning wasn't just something that happened in the classroom. It was a way of life. It was a way of engaging with others in the world around us. So learning as lifestyle. And so um, my uh, curiosity was nurtured at every turn. And And um, one way my parents, my father in particular, nurtured my curiosity was through storytelling. Every evening, my father would sit us down, tuck us in for bed, and we would say, tell us a story when you were little, Dad. And he would share with us um, a new, you know, vignette and and adventure that him and his brothers would go on with this motley crew of people from his (laughs) childhood in, in New England his Catholic school upbringing uh, in the 50s and 60s in New England. And um, it just like riveted our imaginations. And it was only while I was creating content, uh, a, a televisual series for the teaching company for for the great courses, um, Wondrium now, uh, they're like Netflix for education and a large community of lifelong learners like me, um, that my father confided in me a secret. He told me that the stories he told us growing up about his childhood didn't actually happen. (laughs) And at first I was shocked. What? I'd been lied to. And then I thought, you know what? It didn't matter. There were dozens and thousands of hours um, that we spent together, you know, engrossed in my father's creative imagination. 
Japan, these stories formed the the grid, the moral grid of our of our lives, of our worldview. Um, lessons that were that were implicit, like um, you know, be 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 uh, diffuse cruelty with wit, stand up against injustice um, where you can be, you know, be be gentle and kind to those who are weak and vulnerable, things like that. And um, it didn't matter that the stories he told us weren't true, but but um, that is a little bit about uh, me and and my uh, my work. I, I care a lot about lifelong learning and the life of the mind and intellectual history and doing it all uh, in a way that's fun through storytelling. This is something I've really enjoyed about the, the work that you've been involved in. Is it, it it builds upon those great ideas that have come down through the centuries, the great concepts that that great minds still talk about today, and and it's all available to us if we would just seize hold of it. Uh, talk to me about this new televisual series that you're doing called Storytelling and the Human Condition. Because after all, these great ideas are what tie us together, you know, via human nature. Um, what What is this series? Uh, first of all, what was the genesis of this series? Where, where did it originate? So when the teaching company, when the Great Courses in Wonder and reached out to me about the ser- about creating a series for them almost two years ago now. It was such an honor because, again, to the point of being raised in this intellectually omnivorous home, I had been raised on this content. Um, my father, every birthday, every Christmas, sometime for no reason at all, he would go to this mystery closet and bring out a new VHS or uh, a teaching company um DVD series. <laughs> and I would consume, I would just, they were a huge part of the backbone of my education, this content. And um, the, the, again, it was like the best professors from across the country being uh, filmed and te- teaching the content that they that they know and love. So when they reached out to, to me a, about creating a content for them, it just felt like a beautiful historic symmetry where I was raising this content and now I had a, had a chance to create it for others and maybe a new generation of lifelong learners. And um, we settled on this idea of storytelling based on my work as a journalist and an author. And um, the, 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 the series goes, um, it's, it's, it's a time jumping, media traversing, history hopping uh, survey of the human narrative tradition, looking at what great hit stories across time, place, history, culture and genre tell us about what it means to be human and what it means to lead a meaningful life. I just and what I think many people go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I just reflect on my own life and, and the power of stories. And, you know, going back to my earliest age of, you know, that I can remember the earliest. It's, it's the stories that stick with me. So I, I think this is this is so cool that you're exploring this. And and we're just coming out of the cold winter months here in the northern hemisphere where, you know, that's that's what people did traditionally. And I mean, in advanced, even in primitive cultures, you know, the, the colder months in the northern uh, climates, those were times to sit around the fire and the stories were recounted. People understood better who they were, their place in, you know, in the cosmos. That's exactly right. And um, we don't realize that stories aren't just for other people. Like we're all storytellers. We are always telling stories to our selves about ourselves and the world around us. And one theme I explore in the course, um, in addition to this notion of uh, like the great conversation, that it's this it's this iterative dialogue between great minds about fundamental questions about the human experience. Who are we? Why are we here? What is the best way to live? And many other foundational seminal questions. And that that all humans across time, human beings across history and culture have 
asked and answered his questions through story. And we do, we do too. And so there is kind of a big heady theme in the course that uh, like I, I put um, great works, tra- traditional great books in dialogue with contemporary great works of art and sitcoms. That that's one that's one theme of the course, that all great work of art tells a story about the human condition. And so I'm intentional about putting old and new and cross genres in dialogue, you know, opera with with um, with a sitcom and 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 art, like a, a work of art with a with a song um, or a poem or something like that. And um, the idea is that. I hope that people come away from the course with a better understanding of the power of story and how we can use story to, to help us lead better lives, to, that, that it's possible that we, without even realizing it, are telling and retelling a story about ourselves that isn't really ennobling or empowering and that we can harness the power of story, story to tell a greater story uh, about, about who we are and, and about tragedy in our lives, about difficulty, about struggle. That, that 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 all of that is the process of storytelling and we can we can lead better lives by harnessing that power there's something to be said too for for those who will come you know after us whether it's kids grandkids our children's children's children um, for them to have access to these stories it's important and, and I say this from the standpoint of I have a son who's very much into family history and um, I'm amazed at the stories he finds, the accounts that have, have lasted, you know, down through generations. And um, it kind of helps me feel like I, I better understand who came before me, how we got here, you know, from there. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's um, it was really interesting to be able to remedy new uh, areas of uh, knowledge gaps in my own upbringing. That's the fun thing about lifelong learning. Like we have our formal education, but when we are done school, so many people feel like that's when our education ends, but that, that's really when the fun part just begins and we get to learn for fun. And it's not, it's not just, we're not on someone else's schedule, someone else's curriculum. We can chart our own course. And, and so as, as one example, I love learning about African mythology from the series. And I loved learning about the story of Anansi. Anansi is a uh, figure from um, the mythology of the Ashanti people of Ghana. And there's this great story about how he decided to collect all the world's wisdom. And he decides to hide the world's wisdom at the top of a tree. And as he's collected all the world's wisdom, he has his son help him move the world's wisdom to the top of this tree to, to hide it because he wanted to be the wisest person in the world. And, and Anansi <laughs> is like the original Spider-Man, okay? So he would often take the form of a spider. He's really clever and, and wily, kind of like Odysseus from Greek mythology. And then he was about to lose the world's wisdom. It was about to fall. And, and he was about to, it was about to, and his son said, oh, why don't we tie it to the tree and yourself so it doesn't fall and we can get to the top. And when he realized, uh, as he got to the top of the tree, he was like, well, I thought I had all the world's wisdom. And here my son was able to help me. Uh, he had knowledge I didn't have and helped me get the wisdom to the top of the tree. And that's when he realized that, you know, as much as he might try, he could never hold, contain all the world's wisdom. And so he decided to give it all to the world. And, and that is why everyone has a little bit of wisdom and no one has all of it. So I, I had packed that fun story from African mythology um, in my uh, series on, on pride. So it, it was just a really great experience creating the series. So where can people find this? How can they access it? They can enjoy the series actually for free and on a one month trial at Alexandra O. Hudson slash story. And there uh, you can sign up for my newsletter and then you get a free trial to uh, Wondrium to access the course absolutely free for a month and, and, and many, many, many other pieces of content as well from from incredible creators across the world.
Wow. I, I'm so proud of you for what, for what you're doing, and um, especially where it's it's uh, encouraging people to embrace that role of being a lifelong learner. You know, we're never done. You know, it's, exactly. it's going on until we take our final breath, and even then we'll probably learn something. You know, but um, where can people follow you? What was your website again? Alexandra O. Hudson dot com and on my homepage there there's a way to sign up for my newsletter civic-renaissance.com but it's also on on my homepage and um yeah please enjoy it and please tell me what you think contact me and if you get a chance to enjoy the series i'd love to hear from you and and um learn how you are harnessing the power of story to help you lead a better life thanks lexi great to talk with you again you too thanks brian Welcome you back. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices today. Happy to welcome uh, Gary and Frankel back to the program. Uh, great to see you again. For those who are hearing you for the first time, Gary, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Brian. So I am, uh, I, I wear a couple different hats. I'm a regional leader for Young Voices for the South, and most of my work focuses on um, American political thought and education policy. And I'll be starting my PhD in education administration at Texas A&M in the fall. Excellent. Speaking of Texas A&M, looking at your opinion article uh, for the bat.com, um, Texas A&M is not woke. And th- this gets my attention because I kind of have a perception that most universities are, are pretty woke. In fact, most corporations, I think, are too. But you make a pretty uh, sound argument here that uh, they may have been unfairly, unfairly impugned uh, by uh, uh, Professor Scott uh, Yenner, who's, who I'm also familiar with, and I, I respect a lot of his work. Tell me about the, the disagreement here. Um, what, what is uh, Professor Yenner saying, and, and uh, what does he get right? What does he get wrong? Yeah, so Professor Yenner's argument, um, he wrote about four or five articles about Texas A&M and a variety of outlets throughout February. And the crux of his argument is that Texas A&M, which which generally has a reputation of being uh, a bit more conservative, especially for a public university, is just as woke as the University of Texas, which has a reputation of being a very left-wing campus. Um, most of professors, Professor Yenner's arguments um, rely on internal diversity documents that don't have any enforcement power or authority that have no effect on how classes or how classes are conducted or how students operate whatsoever. Um, it misreads some of the administrative priorities uh, regarding diversity at Texas A&M. Um, it misrepresents a program that um, Texas A&M implemented to try and increase faculty diversity. Um, Professor Yenner makes it seem like that uh, white applicants were excluded from the program. And there is even a lawsuit related to this matter. But in reality, there have been several white and Asian faculty members who have been hired under this program. So it's, those arguments are not true on that front. Um, what Yenner did get right, at least previously, is that 60% of uh, departments at AM uh, require that all prospective faculty issue a diversity statement as part of their application. This was not a university-wide mandate, 
uh, it was a choice by the individual departments, except uh, the chancellor of the A&M system, John Sharp, announced earlier this week that those will no longer be conducted. So what exactly is a, is, is a diversity uh, declaration? I'm, I'm, I don't know that I've ever encountered one of those before. Yes. So it's fairly common, especially at a lot more liberal universities, um, for faculty applicants. So this generally does not apply to students, but to people who want to become professors at the university to write a one to two page statement about how their work uh, acts in accordance with or furthers uh, diversity, equity and inclusion. Ah, OK. So yeah, well, Sometimes it's just a milk toast sort of statement that doesn't really affect anybody's prospects. Um, but on a lot of other occasions, it is legitimately used as an ideological litmus tests that filters out people who go against the grain. So it, it depends. And as you, you point out in your article, you yourself have argued against these diversity, equity, you know, um, you know, initiatives um, yourself. But it sounds like the, the point of contention here is you're saying Scott Yanner is unfairly painting Texas A&M as, as being a woke campus when really it's not. Yeah, as I mentioned in my article, um, I in my own course as a student, my Ph.D. will be my third degree from Texas A&M. I've engaged in political activism that in a lot of other campus at a lot of other campuses uh, may have gotten me thrown off for the egregious crime of being right wing. Um, I wrote an article in the student paper that attacked an anonymous Twitter's account that doxed people who weren't wearing masks outside at the height of the pandemic. Uh, the account ended up being shut down very shortly after my article was published. Uh, I was the chairman of the college Republicans during the 2020 election, which was a very interesting experience. Um, <laughs> frequently brought conservative libertarian politicians and pundits to campus. So it's not like I'm someone who's just been in the background the entire time and is now trying to speak from some kind of podium above everybody else it's you know it could have easily been a really really bad experience for me but it wasn't and i think my situation is broadly representative you know um you mentioned that uh, Scott Yenner is is also um, associated with Boise State University, and because that's closer to where I live, I do pay pretty close attention to some of the stuff that they do. And for for instance, uh, Abraham Kendi X came and spoke for Martin Luther King Day, and you know this is just my opinion, but uh, I I don't find his message particularly uniting. I feel like he has more of a he has more of what I would call a woke and divisive sort of, of message, and yet that seemed right in character with what uh, Boise. State University wanted. I, I guess what I'm getting at is, I think there are some legitimate examples of, of very, very woke campuses where um, basically, as a right, as, if you're perceived as a right winger, you probably should look out. There's there's a target on you. Oh, absolutely. There's a plenty of campuses around the country where that is reality for most of the students. So Berkeley is the infamous example. Yale is another one. Harvard is there. Princeton is getting there. Um, there's plenty of them. And it's really the elite, the quote unquote elite universities that are sort of the worst offenders on this front. But I think something that people who are on the side of educational liberalism and are trying to 
stand against some of these forces have to sort of grapple with is just because one department or one organization on campus does something silly and ridiculous and woke and divisive doesn't mean that the entire campus and all of the institutions they're in are suspect because they're two very different things. And if we want to keep our attacks meaningful, which they should be, we should stick to the matters that really impact the day-to-day operations of the university. No, I, I I agree with you. And I, and frankly, I'm thankful to see you taking this approach of, look, it's not that we shouldn't ever discuss these things, but if we're going to discuss them, let's do it in a way that's actually productive and, and isn't bringing more division and more anger into an already contentious situation. Exactly. If you look throughout uh, history, a lot of grassroots or activist sort of movements, whether on the left or the right, eventually get to a stage where they begin to push too far. And when you begin to push too far, you generate a response in the other direction that's just as forceful, if not even more forceful. And I think we are approaching the point with some of the diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff where the activism is doing more harm than it is good. So in some cases, we need to pull back, ensure that we're not just creating more anger and division and focus on being constructive as opposed to just punishing our perceived enemies because we don't like them and they make us mad. Here, here. No, I'm I'm definitely on the same page with you, Gary. I I see a lot of people able to identify problems, sometimes loudly. <laughs> I don't see very many people that uh, are, are willing to look at the problem, see it for what it is, and then, you know, move forward. Where where can we go from here? That's that's better as opposed to just where can we stand and and point fingers and and you know call people out. So. Uh, what you're what you're suggesting here, I think, is worth recommending. And, and look, I got to say too, it's 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 this is your alma mater. You're standing up to, you know, standing up for rather. You know, I can I can see where if someone is unfairly portraying them, you would definitely want to to you know defend her honor. Aggies are a very proud people. I I can't deny that. <laughs> well, congratulations too on on starting your your PhD program. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine the amount of work that uh, that you have still ahead of you, but uh, it sounds like you're you're going good places, and and I wish you the very best. Thanks, Brian. I'm really excited. So, Gary and Frankel is our guest. He's a Young Voices contributor, and you're also the regional director. That is for for Young Voices for the South. Yes. For the South. Tell us where people can follow you, where they can find your writings, and where they can find you on social media. Um, social media, I'm most active on Twitter. Y'all can find me at F-R-A-N-K-E-L-G-A-R-I-O-N, and my writing appears all over the place. Okay, he really does. If you Google his name, I bet you'll find it. Anyway, (laughs) Gary, thanks so much. Good to catch up with you again. All the best, and let's talk again soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Brian.